Well, last week we saw the Apostle Paul's portrait of the human condition. We looked at several verses that helped to unpack what a, a man or a woman or a boy or a girl looks like apart from grace. As I was thinking about the idea of a portrait, uh, a, a painting actually popped into my mind. My wife and I have a painting of Pike Place Market. How many of you like to go to Pike's Place? Like four of you. Okay. We'll have a small group event one of these weekends. I love, my wife loves to go to Pike's Place Market. When you see this portrait, if you've been there and if you enjoy going there, you can almost smell the smells. You can almost hear the sounds. You can, you can sense the enthusiasm of things like throwing the salmon. You can smell the freshly roasted coffee at Starbucks number one. You can taste the Turkish delight. It's just a, it's an amazing place. Well, the reason for this illustration is that every portrait tells a story. The story of Paul the Apostle's portrait is this in Romans 3, 9 to 20. That all creatures are doomed and under sin. As a sort of a mirror. When you look in the mirror, you see certain things. There's a, a twofold purpose that we examined last week. When I look into the mirror as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, the only portrait of destruction that I see is in the past. When I look into the mirror as a, as a blood-bought Christian, I don't see the portrait of destruction now. I see it in the rearview mirror. It shows us what we have been delivered from. No longer are we dead in our trespasses and sins. No longer are we at war with God. No longer are we enemies of the living God. We are no longer under the domineering power of sin. We are new creatures. Amen? Now we have been Seated with, with Christ in the heavenlies, so says the Apostle Paul. Now we have been redeemed from all our sins, past, present, and future. Now we have been reconciled to a holy God. Now, as John the Apostle says in 1 John 3, we are children of God. So when a Christian looks in the mirror, he doesn't see the portrait of destruction. He sees the destruction in the previous days when he was a, a person who was under the wrath of God. The mirror tells us and reminds us of 1 Peter chapter 2, 24 and 25. That Jesus, listen, bore our sin in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You couldn't have said that as an unconverted person. But now as a follower of Jesus... You are reminded, by his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, is no longer a portrait of destruction. Rather, you are an object of God's mercy. 
The God of the universe rejoices over you. You say, he rejoices over moi? He rejoices over me? Don't you understand what I did last week? Don't you understand the thoughts that circulated in my mind as a converted man or woman or boy or girl? Don't you know what I've been through? Well, of course, God knows all of these things. But he chooses to forgive you and separate your sins as far as the east is from the west and bury your sins in the sea of forgetfulness and hide them behind his back. He forgets. This is an astounding reality, is it not? That the omniscient God forgets my sin. Well, that's the first thing this mirror accomplishes. But it does one more thing in the life of every unconverted person. That is, for every person who is yet to to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and be converted. This kind of a mirror is a tool for those who are perishing. And may I say say it clearly and boldly, if you are not a Christian, you are perishing. If you are not a Christian, you are lost. If you are not a Christian, you are enemies with God. If you are not a Christian, you are under the wrath of the Holy God. This mirror in the life of a non-believer reveals the truth of who you are and where you stand before God. And it tells you this. When you look into that mirror, it tells you, Sir, ma'am, young man, young woman... You are doomed under sin. And it tells you that you are destined for destruction under the law. When you look in the mirror, you freely acknowledge that you stand condemned by God. That you are guilty as charged. Yesterday, my my son said something just out of the blue to me. As we were talking about evangelism and reaching out in our community. He says, Dad, he goes, your sermon's... Or for believers and unbelievers. I was like, yeah. yeah." He has no idea, to this day, how encouraging that was for me. Because I want the messages at Christ's fellowship to reach believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But to also be evangelistic. That the Lord Jesus Christ would be at the center of every sermon that you hear from this pulpit. Two reminders for the unbeliever. And we saw these reminders last week. Reminder number one, that if you're an unbeliever, you have no recourse. Paul says in Romans 3.19, every mouth will be stopped. Some of you, if you were here, you remember what that word means. The word stopped literally means to close the door. If you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's it. There, there are no more excuses. There's nothing that you can say. There's no more time for negotiations. Every mouth will be stopped. There's nothing that a sinner can ever do to convince God to accept him or her. We have also learned that these sinful creatures, according to Paul's words in Romans 3.19, they have no second chances. Paul says the whole world, that's pretty comprehensive, right? The whole world will be held accountable to God. In other words, once again, there will be no negotiating on Judgment Day. There will be no, this is hard to say, there will be no grace for unrepentant sinners on Judgment Day. Today, 
while there is still time, there is grace. There is mercy for every person that believes. And so before we have got out of the chutes, let me say this. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You know, one of my heroes is Charles Haddon Spurgeon, as I mentioned in class this morning. And that was really the theme of his preaching ministry. He would shout, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And hundreds and hundreds and thousands of people in the United Kingdom came to a saving knowledge of God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ Fellowship, do you believe that that can happen in our little neck of the woods? Randy, I, I, I just want to say publicly to you, thank you so much for being encouragement to me as, as my, my friend. Because Randy and I have talked about this, that we have something special here in Everson. Here we are. By the way, when I meet someone from out of town, they say, where are you from? You know what I tell them? Seattle. You know why I tell them that? Not because I'm embarrassed that we live in Everson. I tell them that because they've never heard of Bellingham. Right? If they live out of state. So I say, I'm from Seattle. Oh, what part of Seattle? They say, Issaquah. Oh, oh, you know Seattle then. Oh, I'm in Bellingham. Oh, you know, you're in Bellingham. Oh, I have friends in Linden. You know, you, you go from bad to worse, right? I'm just kidding. And so once I know that they understand where Linden is, I say, well, you might know where Everson is, right? But here's how Randy has encouraged me. We have something special in our little town. This is something I'm growing more and more convinced of. We have something very unique here at Christ Fellowship. And I believe that God wants to do something magnanimous here in Everson, here in Whatcom County. And we need to be very careful that we don't keep this message to the four walls of this campus. We need to, to move out into the marketplace of ideas and share the message of the good news. It's more than inviting people to church because it's not my job exclusively to share the gospel. It's our job corporately to share the gospel. And so if you're not a believer, remember this. You have no recourse. You have no second chances on Judgment Day. Well, Paul continues to show how no one will be justified, how no one will be made righteous in the sight of God by works of the law. Look with me at Romans chapter 3, verse 20. In Romans 3, verse 20, to review, he says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. This is scandalous in the worldview of a first century Jew. Absolutely scandalous. And so where does this leave the sinful creature? Where does this leave the the Jew or the Gentile or the Greek who does not have a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ? In short, it leaves him helpless, it leaves him hopeless, and it leaves him as a lost person. He is, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, he is without God in the world. And so what, therefore, is this person's greatest need? If you would take your eyes, your, your eye gate, as one writer once said. I love that. Take your eye gate and look at Romans 3, verses 9 to 20. And just kind of crystallize in your, 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 your mind and your heart that, that portrait of destruction. And as I studied this passage, I asked myself this follow-up question. What is this person's greatest need? And the answer to the question is going to run us through several chapters in the book of Romans. It's a theme that will emerge over and over 
and over again. The greatest need of this person who has been condemned, who stands under the judgment of God, his greatest need is the righteousness of God. Moms and dads, this is the question that you can talk to your children about at lunch today. Johnny, Susie, what did we learn today? It's almost like backdoor catechism, right? What did we learn today about the greatest need of human beings? And every child this morning should be able to respond. Mom, dad, the greatest need of every sinner is the righteousness of God. We need right standing with God. Look in the streets of Everson. Look in the streets of Nooksack. Look in the streets of Sumas and Linden and Bellingham and Seattle and beyond. What is the greatest need of all those who surround us? The righteousness of a holy God. They need to be justified. Now, here's the problem. We have already learned that sinful creatures can never achieve this lofty goal on their own. And so the title of the message this morning is Our Greatest Need. Our Greatest Need. And as we examine these verses, it's as if Paul is saying something like this. In light of the horrible painting that I have just painted in Romans 3, 9 to 20. In light of all the paint that I've splashed on the canvas that reveals the portrait of destruction. I have something else to add. I have something else to add, and we will see that the contrast here is a massive shift that brings hope to sinners and hope to the nations. And so Paul begins to unfold the wonderful reality of the gospel. And may I warn you, as I hope you have your Bibles open to Romans 3, starting in verse 21, we are going to start to move into a season in this section of Romans where we go really, really slow. For some of you, it's going to be really weird because last week was Romans 3, 9 to 20. I'm really surprised I didn't get more comments like, Pastor, are you serious? You can't preach that many verses in one message. Okay, I hear you. So now as we look to Romans 3, 21 to 24, I want to give you those few verses, and we're going to narrow our focus this morning to verse 21. So would you stand with me out of respect for the authority of God's word, and let's read this passage together. Paul the Apostle writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Lord, we're excited to dig into this section of scripture. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the reality uh, that we can embrace today because the Spirit of God resides within us. Lord, I pray for those who are not yet believers, that you would touch them with the wonder of your love, that they would hear the gospel, that they would not only see the Lord Jesus Christ, but they would savor the Lord Jesus Christ. And so would you be merciful to the unconverted, and would you encourage by the power of your Spirit all those who are Christians in this room. In Jesus' name, amen. So if the greatest need of every sinner is 
the righteousness of God, I want you to see with me several facets of that righteousness. Yesterday, I had the opportunity of looking at the biggest diamond I've ever seen in my life. There was a name for it. I can't remember. It was some big name and some big donor gave it to a museum. And this diamond was literally like this big. And I just, I'd love to see a woman wear that on her finger, right? You'd be walking around like this. You couldn't even, you couldn't even put it on the the ring, right? Well, as I looked at that diamond and and, and gazed at the the multifaceted beauty, that's what we need to see about the righteousness of, of God. And my prayer is that as we probe the depths of God's righteousness, that as Christians, you would be deeply, deeply encouraged. That you would be enriched as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of you who have yet to trust Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. That today would be the day when you receive your greatest need, namely the righteousness of Christ. So, The first heading, and it's going to be the only heading that I want you to look at me with, is found in verse 21 of Romans 3. And it's simply this, that righteousness is revealed. Righteousness is revealed. There is a clear contrast here as Paul sets verse 21 and following from what we have learned in verse 9 to 20. There's this demarcation. And it's, it's set apart in contrast by the very first word in Romans 3.21. Do you see that word? Would someone yell out that word? That was very weak. Someone yell it out. But. But is a great biblical word. I love the buts of the New Testament. Here, but is this transition, but it's more than a transition. It's a contrast from what we learned in Romans three nineteen to 20, the portrait of destruction. Aren't you glad for the word but here? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What a wonderful word. Once again, it indicates a shift, and this shift indicates that sinners have hope. Sinners who are labeled under the banner of the portrait of destruction have hope. If you remember, in Romans 3, 19 to Romans 3, 9 to 20, we learn beginning of verse 11, none is righteous, no, not one, no one seeks God, no one understands, all have turned aside, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Paul goes on to say that the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. This is a a perilous position that we find the unconverted person in. And so if you're an unconverted person this morning, you should thank God for this word in verse 21. It's the word but. Because but leads us into the core message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It tells us that there is hope for sinners. And the hope is this, that righteousness is revealed. Now I want to, to be very simple this morning, ask two very important questions about this main heading. Righteousness is revealed. I want to first of all address the matter of righteousness by asking this question. What in the world 
is it? What is it? When I was in college, some of you may remember this kind of season and it began. The word righteous became popular as a word of exclamation. How many of you remember this? Something would happen that was cool and you'd go, righteous. Or am I just weird? I'm the only one that went through that. Maybe it's a Bible college thing. Righteous, right? So everything for me was righteous. Until my dad got a hold of me. Yeah. Never a good thing. My dad pulled me aside and said, son, do you have any idea what you're saying? When you say the word righteous like that, as a word like, hey, it's cool, man. That's what I'm saying. He says, you need to be very careful with how you use your language. And you know what? My dad was right. He was right. And so we want to ask, what is righteousness? And after we wrestle with that, we want to ask, how is righteousness revealed? So first, what is righteousness? A brief definition. Louis Burkhoff wrote a systematic theology, I believe in 1939. And of all the systematic theologies that I own, and I, I own several, I, I go again and again to Louis Burkhoff for help with understanding theology. Here's what Dr. Burkhoff says. He says, the fundamental idea of righteousness is that of strict adherence to the law. Among men, it presupposes that there is a law to which they must conform. And then he continues. He says, at its heart, the term righteousness means conformity to a standard. Conformity to a standard. And so we read in Psalm 119, 137, Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. See, that's why I I listen to my father's advice. And never again use the word righteous as an explanation or an exclamation of something that I was experiencing. Psalm chapter 145, verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. This morning in class, we visited John chapter 17, known as the high priestly prayer. And Jesus says this as he prays to the Father. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. Wayne Grudem in his book, Systematic Theology, that some of the men are studying in Ironman, says this about righteousness. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. Do you know what I hear in the culture that we live in when a definition like that is proposed? Let me give it to you one more time. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance with what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. You see, this has nothing to do with opinion. This has nothing to do with subjectivity. See, we all have opinions, but what people in postmodern culture say is, oh, you, you think you, you got it all figured out. You know what's right. Why, why do you have the exclusive truth? Or why does God have the exclusive truth? He is the final standard of what is right. Let me illustrate yesterday. It's still hard to believe this, but uh, yesterday at 
about 2 o'clock, my son and I were driving by the Empower Field Mile High Stadium in Denver, Colorado. That's a little weird to think about. So we drive by the stadium, and a couple thoughts were going through my mind. Is if you were to ask any person in Denver, who's the best NFL team? Guess what they're going to say? While I'm wearing my Seahawks sweatshirt. Yeah. They're going to say the Broncos. The Broncos are the best. And you're going to walk in the streets of Seattle. And if a person knows what he's talking about, you're going to ask who's the best. And that person's going to say the Hawks, baby. Go Hawks, right? Russell. Well, we have two opinions. So who is the best? It's relative. It's all relative based on how the, how the season's going, what the coaching staff looks like, what the roster looks like, how many wins in the win column, how many losses in the loss column. So we're not talking about our opinion here in matters of theology of the Christian life. God himself is the final standard of what is right. So Psalm 19.8 says, The precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing in the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. What do you think the response of a postmodern culture would be to Isaiah 45, 19? I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak truth. I declare what is, guess, Right. God declares what is right because he is the final standard of what is right. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4, the rock, that's capital R, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice. A God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Wayne Grudem continues, if indeed God is the final standard of righteousness, then there can be no standard outside God by which we measure righteousness or justice. He himself is the final standard. God sets the benchmark. He tells us what is right. He tells us what is wrong. So much for definitions. Notice also two critical aspects of God's righteousness. Theologians describe it this way. There is, first of all, the re, re, this is really hard to say. You have no idea how many times I practiced this, and it did no good. Remun, remunerative, there I did it. Remunerative, there is the remunerative justice, namely the distribution of rewards as an aspect of God's righteousness. Then there is the retributive justice of God, or the infliction of divine penalties or divine wrath. Very quickly, think about remunerative justice, the, distrib- the distribution of rewards. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Retributive justice, the infliction of penalties or the infliction of divine wrath now the word of god is very clear on this and it's also very unpopular second thessalonians chapter 1 verse 8 says in flaming fire 
inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as a preacher of the gospel, one of my very important roles is that I explain to unconverted people that apart from Jesus, that you will endure the wrath of God forever and ever and ever. And I'm sorry to say and sad to say that's coming from very few pulpits in our culture anymore. Why? Because preachers are afraid that people will be mad at them. Preachers are afraid that people will stop giving. Preachers are afraid that people will stop coming. May I say at Christ Fellowship that we want to be as bold and gracious as possible in sharing the message of the gospel. Two critical aspects of God's righteousness. But then, if you go back to Romans 3, verse 21, I want you to see a mind-blowing reality. As I studied this passage, that's just what popped into my mind. This is a mind-blowing reality because the Scripture says in verse 21 that, remember what sinful people need? They need the righteousness of God. Verse 21 tells us that the righteousness of God has been what? It's been revealed. The ESV translates that word manifested. The righteousness of God has has been revealed. It's been manifested. That word revealed comes from a Greek term that means to cause to be seen. It means to make known. It means to be clearly revealed to the mind or the senses. And I want, you to, I want you to see a couple of passages where the biblical authors use the Greek word phanerao, translated manifested or revealed, and to give you an idea of how important this word is. You don't need to turn there. John chapter 2, verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. What happens when Jesus does the miracles? He performs these miracles. The disciples and all the other converted and unconverted people, what do they witness? They're witness not only to the miracle, but they are a a, a first person eyewitness of the glory of God. Can I be honest with you? Just one person say yes, and I'll do it. Okay. This is what I'm concerned about. That we have church, or we have events, and we do things as the body of Christ, and it's kind of like, well, yeah, well, maybe, maybe not. I'm convinced that if we heard that later today that Jesus was going to show up at Walmart and do some miracles and show us his glory, it would be like, where's my phone? Like, I don't know. I I got a football game on at 3 o'clock. I don't know if I can make it. We're missing the glory of God. We're missing the glory of God. And we miss the glory of God. We are missing out on something very special. 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, the mystery, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested. Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Revealed. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Jesus is revealed. His glory is revealed, so says John chapter 1. 1 Peter 1.20, He, or Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. He was revealed. John 1.12, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. 
that helps us to make sense of the verse that precedes it, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That preposition with means face-to-face, that the Father and the Son were face-to-face, two-person distinction here in the triune God. 1 John 4, 9, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son in the world, that we might live through him. This is the definition of righteousness. God is the final standard of what is right. But then I want to ask this question and we'll close. How has it been revealed? And this is one that you need to uh, get your ears ready to listen, get your eyes ready to focus, get your mind turned on, to be like I I mentioned my friend this morning, you're, you're leaning forward, right? You're leaning forward, ready to hear the truth of God's word. Because verse 21 says two things here. First, it says, it has been revealed apart from the law. Look at it once again. Now, the righteousness of God, I just left out the most important word in the sentence, right? But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been revealed apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. You say, what does that mean? First, it's been revealed apart from the law. The law, or The Greek word namos refers in general to the Old Testament commandments that were set forth by God. It also refers to the complete revelation of Scripture that came before the incarnation of Jesus. But what's important for our consideration is that namos or law also has a negative angle, which I believe that the Apostle Paul has in mind here. Namely, that the law the Jews were so intent on keeping in order to have right relationship with God. They think that they can, they can obey God. They think they can keep the Mosaic law in order to find favor or right standing with God. And while the Jews felt like they measured up to the demands of the law, we know now nothing could be further from the truth. It's fascinating to me because as Jesus is is preaching and he's sharing the word of God with the crowds in Matthew 5.20. He says something that, that should send shivers up your spine. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So we have the scribes and the Pharisees. They've got it all figured out. All the way to the letter of the law. They're, they're doing everything they, they know they need to do in order to merit favor in the eyes of God. And here's the irony. It never works. But then Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds what they are doing, and they're failing, by the way, you will never inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Jews were not the only ones who were trying to to gain brownie points by obeying the law of God. Who else does that? You do it. I do it. We do it as a culture. Every world religion does it. We try to earn favor with God by being the good guy. We try to earn favor with God by being the good guy. I don't know if I should share this story with law enforcement officials in the sanctuary, but Dreen and I were traveling over a pass and it got, it got foggy and my wife doesn't like to drive in the fog and Wait a minute. I don't either. So I don't know how this works. But and so we decided we we're going to stop. And literally, you couldn't see in front of your hand. And uh, so we stopped on this pass. And I said to Dreen as we were pulling over to the side to switch 
me in the driver's seat. I said, here's what we're going to do, honey. Right when you park the car, jump out. I'm going to jump out. We're going to go as quick as we can because this, this is dangerous, right? To be parked on the side of the road, right? So, I mean, I've never seen Jereen move so fast, right? I mean, it was awesome. She gets to the side. I've never seen myself move so fast, right? And we're going we're gonna to bust. Right before I get in the car, I look, and behind me is a state trooper with his lights on. Oh, great. And he, he opens his, I can almost see it in slow motion, so I'll say it in slow motion. Some of you are like, yeah, finally, talking slowly. Good. Um, he starts to open his door, and I look like this, and I'm thinking, this, this is a dangerous situation. I don't want him to get injured. I don't want us to get injured. And so I start like a complete idiot walking toward him. He gets behind the door, draws his weapon, stay away from the car! I'm just like, you know what I said? This will just make you laugh. If nothing else I say is funny. I'm one of the good guys! <laughs> I'm, I'm a pastor! I'm a good guy! I've never gotten a speeding ticket! I'm a good guy! Stay away from the car! I'm just like, ah! I was so scared. So finally, he figured out that I was, I think he figured out I was one of the good guys. And we ended up having a conversation. And he said to me, don't you know you never approach a law enforcement's vehicle? Like, what were you thinking? I said, I didn't want you to get hurt. Now we're talking like friends, right? So he ends up saying, all right, you know, you guys take off, drive safe. I jump in the car. I don't know if you guys do this, but... When you get picked up, right? If something happens to your right leg, right? Does that happen to you? It's like, it's like the, my left leg's fine. My right leg's just shaking. I get in the car and Jureen says to me, is everything okay, honey? It's like, I just about got shot by a state trooper. Yeah, everything's great. I just said, don't ask any more questions. We're out of here. And I put it in gear and took off, right? Well, what's the whole point of that story? I like to be one of the good guys. You like to be one of the good guys, but where it gets very intense is that we think that our goodness is going to get us to heaven. We think our goodness is going to get us to heaven. But remember, the word of God says in Romans 3.20, for by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight. Second Timothy 1.9, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Titus 3, 5, he saved us not by works done by us in righteousness. And of course, we all know Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through what? Through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So we learn here, how has it been revealed? It has been revealed apart from the law. But this is where we have to put our thinking caps on. Because we also see it has been revealed by the law and the prophets. You see that in verse 21? The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. St. Augustine said the New Testament is hidden in the Old, and the Old Testament is made open and explicit in the New. That's important. 
John MacArthur helps further our understanding here. He says, quote, The Mosaic laws were not given as a means of achieving righteousness, but of describing God's righteousness and showing the impossibility of men's living up to it. The Mosaic sacrifices were not prescribed as means of atoning for sin, but of symbolically pointing to Jesus Christ, who himself became the sacrifice for the sins of the world. In other words, this righteousness that is revealed is not an afterthought with God. This is something that he planned in eternity past to save a people for his own possession. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest, revealed in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. That's my aim this morning, that we would all leave and say, my faith, my hope is in God, not in climbing the ladder, Not in being one of the good guys. Not in trying to merit favor in the eyes of a holy God. But our faith and hope would be in God and God alone. I shared with you, I believe last week or the week before, that Martin Lloyd-Jones has been my friend who I have never met. And I can't wait to meet him in heaven. He's my, my trusted comrade in all things theological, and he's been especially helpful in the book of Romans. And I, I trust that you'll get to know him as well as we study the book of Romans. He says this. He says, the gospel was planned before the foundation of the world. And it was because God had planned it before the foundation of the world that he was able to reveal it in the law and the prophets. I grew up in a system of theology, and I even learned this in Bible college, that God had a, a plan to bring his messianic kingdom and the Jews decided they weren't interested and Jesus was crucified. And so the cross became the backup plan for God, became plan B. And I've since learned that nothing is further from the truth. God has one plan. It's called plan A and it's the plan that he has established in eternity past. And so here's the solution to our horrible, horrible Dilemma. This portrait of destruction. The solution is this. The righteousness of God has been revealed. This is what I fear. That some of us are so accustomed to hearing it that we grow weary of hearing it. You remember I've said probably two dozen times, why do I keep preaching the same gospel message over and over? Luther says because you keep forgetting it. And so we continue to learn it over and over and over again. I remember as a college student, I went to a concert. Some of you may remember Daryl Mansfield, harmonica player. I mean, amazing blues musician, a follower of Jesus. And he started to preach the gospel. And I vividly remember thinking, Daryl, dude, seriously, man, I came to hear music. I know the gospel. I know the gospel. And it was like the Holy Spirit just cut me to the quick. And it's as if I, 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 I thought of my, my spirit. No, no, no. Hey, Steele. Hey, little man. You need the gospel every day. 
Jerry Bridges says we should preach the gospel to ourselves. And so at Christ Fellowship, many of you are seasoned believers. May you never get tired of hearing the gospel. Not just for your unconverted friends that come and need to hear it, but for you. Because we need to constantly remember that what I'm looking at in the mirror, what I see in the past is not me. That is not me anymore. I am seated in the heavenlies with Christ. And so our greatest need is God's righteousness. And the only way we receive it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is to this subject that we turn our attention to next week. Where we learn of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son sent by the Father to bridge the gap between sinners and a holy God. Where we learn that God sent Christ to repair what was ruined, to reconcile sinners to God, to restore right, right relationship between people and with God. We have so much more to unpack, and we've only scratched the surface in verse 21. But I want to conclude by asking two questions. And the first question is this, is have you come to terms with your greatest need? Or are you medicating symptoms and forgetting about the disease? You say, what do you mean by that? It would be like if you were diagnosed with cancer and every morning you woke up and put a few band-aids on your arm to help with your cancer. You're not dealing with the real issue. And that's what people do in life is, is they are medicating their symptoms by loading up on substances by doing good works, by, by, by putting money in the offering plate, by doing good things. And they're forgetting, they're forgetting about the real disease of sin. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And so if you are not yet a Christian, I want you to see this morning the weightiness of living under the wrath of God and being utterly unreconciled to him. I want you to see and to to understand that today is the day of salvation, to understand that Jesus lived the life that you could never live. He is the second Adam. He did what Adam could never do. So he lived the life that you could never live and he died the death that I deserve to die and that you deserve to die. That amazing passage in Romans 117, the passage that, that Luther confronted and it unleashed the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And so if you're not a believer this morning, I invite you to, to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, to turn from your sin and to turn to Jesus and leave this morning as a blood-bought child of the living God. Secondly, if you're a Christian, have you come to terms with the depth of what you have been delivered from? This morning, I want to encourage you, if you are a follower of Jesus, to, to glory in the gospel of Christ. And when you glory in the gospel of Christ, here's what happens. It's amazing. You find yourself worshiping. And when you worship, your perspective is transformed. And when your perspective is transformed, your mindset is renewed. And when your mindset is renewed, your focus all of a sudden shifts from the horizontal to the what? To the vertical. And you start to exalt and magnify and glorify the living God. 
your perspective is totally, totally transformed and renewed. I want to encourage you to to go deeper in grace, to go deeper in the word of God. And I'm looking forward to 2020. Anyone looking forward to 2020? It's going to be a great year for this church family. I'm looking forward to seeing people come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, to seeing people discipled and getting to know Jesus, meeting new people, meeting new faces. I met some new people today. We're so glad that you're here with us. And we are excited about the future. Let me pray and we'll close with our remaining songs. Father God, thank you for Christ fellowship. Thank you for this place where we can come together and read your word and study your word and sing your word and fellowship and, and see you do mighty things here in our presence. We thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who delivers us from the power and the penalty of sin. And one day we will be set free from sin's very presence. Lord, I, I pray that you would um, help us to understand what our greatest need is, that we need the righteousness of God. And it's not received by works. It is not received by good looks. It is not received by a, a pedigree. It's not a, received by a, a resume or a family background. It is received by grace alone through faith alone, as we will continue to unpack that great reality next week. So as we sing these closing songs, would you encourage this, your people, and would you draw those who are not yet followers of Jesus to yourself? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.